I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and hardcore Swifty, baby. I love Taylor Swift. Hi, I'm Gabby John. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, and great with kids. Okay, this is so crazy. I was about to ask you about Taylor Swift because my first question for you was going to be, did you hear the 10-minute version of All Too Well, which is a song that you would love? Uh, yes, I did. I listened to it last night. I still need to do like a deep dive dissection of the lyrics and what it all means. <laughs> and I did a little of that <laughs> last night, but I was getting home from like five hours of class. So I like couldn't give it my all. But yes, uh, it remains one of the best songs of all time. It's incredibly beautiful. Also, I just literally tweeted about this, but like at the time when that song came out, that line like so casually cruel in the name of being honest was like, oh, wow, that's like one of the best lyrics of all time that's ever happened. And then I literally just tweeted a joke that was like, did my ex-fiance hear this song and think that that was good advice? <laughs> that like, <laughs> that's how you're oh supposed to be. <laughs> Honestly, she should have re-released Red like a year ago when this was happening. Do you know what I mean? Like she should have like, honestly, that's on her. Like that's her problem. Cause like it could have really benefited you not when you're like now again in a happy relationship, but like right at that moment. You know what I mean? I was like, wow, my favorite line was just a premonition of what was to come for me. Well, that's why she's great because she's so like specific but relatable obviously oh yeah it's but amazing. like yeah I listened to it I'm not like a huge Taylor Swift fan I think all of my Taylor Swift opinions are like wrong somehow like people love 1989 and I'm like yeah and then people didn't like reputation and I love reputation like I think I'm sort of like I like her but I think my opinions might be completely wrong according to anyone who's like an actual Swifty so I do apologize but I kind of really uh I didn't mind Ed Sheeran rapping but I listened to I listened to it right before this uh and it's great and I think it captures the experience of being a a woman in her young 20s with a older boyfriend who is just kind of making you feel gaslit and and nuts all the time. And I was like, this captures this like really well as storytelling. He's just such a great storyteller. The thing I've always been drawn to in music is the lyrics. And for me, mm-hmm. she's just like, it's so well done. And I, I love her two new albums as well. Like I've been mm-hmm. listening to those a lot. And I'm just, I feel like I go in and out of like, her being such a huge part of my life yeah (laughs) like I hadn't listened to her for a long time and now I'm like back in and I'm like oh this is everything to me (laughs) I haven't listened to the new ones and I should because I I have a cabin I'm in the aesthetic but like I just it, it wasn't appealing to me I like her when she's like fuck you I don't like her when she's like I'm happy in my relationship in the woods and I'm like no a lot of the songs are in about being happy or it's like about oh, okay. different things like yeah right where you left me I think is like one of the the most clever setups for a song I don't know that one I will check it out it's very very good I don't even know I I like <laughs> listen on Spotify so I don't even know what it is connected to like which album but it's incredible anyway this mm. is just between us a variety show filled with heartfelt advice ridiculous games and brutal honesty only about Taylor Swift <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to, I know you were upset because this show was just about Gabby's gender and Allison's ex-fiance, but we have added the third topic and it is Taylor Swift. No one asked for it. No one wanted it. And here we are. <laughs> no, but we actually have a really great episode for you guys this week. We have an incredible guest, Jamie Loftus, who is a podcast queen. But uh, for mm-hmm. this episode, we wanted to do a deep dive into one of the topics she covered on one of her podcasts, which is the book Lolita and also the iconography of Lolita. So it's a really interesting discussion about how we all got it wrong. <laughs> and Taylor Swift is not off, off topic for that. So really, we did a great job. (laughs) And later on, we'll be discussing prevention and why it might just be the best treatment for everything. But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. So you all know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Aaron, Indonesia. International! This is a true international question, and we are here for it. 
Hi, Gabby and Allison. My name is Aaron, she, her, from Indonesia. English is not my first language, so I'm sorry if I made a lot of mistakes while writing this email. I love your podcast. I listen to both of you nonstop every day. That can't be good for you. That cannot be good for you. (laughs) I have no idea who to talk to about this, so I hope you guys can help. I'm 28 years old this year and very happy about it. Finally, I have a job that I like and have some savings in the bank. I work in my family farm for years to be able to buy my own crops and started my own, but I still work with my family. I'm excited about my future and investing most of my time to my work. I have two close friends since high school. We basically grew up together. I love them and they helped me a lot in the past. But recently I found my friends think my independence and work is not ideal or suitable for a woman. I work under the sun, so they sometimes make comments about how dark my skin and my scars because of labor. They keep talking about how I should get married and have kids because that's what women do. I honestly don't have any desire to do that. I find mothers are amazing and you should have a baby if you want to. Our last meeting together made me sad for days, and their comments still linger in my mind. I want to still be friends, but I am afraid if I express I don't want to get married or have kids, they will turn it into a longer conversation about how women should have kids. I am confused. What should I do? Please help. Okay, so obviously this has different cultural touchstones. So like, you know, this conversation might be very normal for Indonesia. It might be very normal for the American South. It might be very normal for certain classes of people. So as a specific, you know, I think this is something that comes up for people in those situations where people think that way. Whereas like, you know, I think there's this misconception that everyone our age, so so Aaron's 28, Allison and I are in our early 30s, that people our age are waiting longer to have kids, are waiting longer to settle down. If they're settling down at all, there seems to be a large child-free movement happening too in a way that like wasn't accessible to our boomer parents because it was just assumed you would settle down and have kids, quote unquote, settle down and have kids and get married and all that within a a specific time frame. Where Allison and I are in LA, I think it's a little bit like normalized and celebrated to to be uh, more focused on work. But in a broader sense, like what does it mean when you and your friends are it completely off in terms of life stages. And that you feel like your friend is judging you for being different. That's really hard. Yeah. And like you have to live the life that they're living. Also, I don't even want to get into the class implications of somebody having darker skin from working outside. But in general, what do you do if your friends all become parents and married and you're not? You know, what happens to the ability to be friends? I see a lot of posts I'm on like child-free Reddit and child-free message boards because it just, it feels good to see people living your dreams. And I was like, a lot of people are talking about how they, they're not invited to hang out anymore. They're not invited, either they're pressured to fit in or all the parents get together with their kids' play dates and they're not invited and they say they don't see their friends anymore. I'm like, what do you do with that? It's really hard. And, you know, I'm torn between two options. One is like, maybe this is just a topic that you don't discuss with your friends where you just sort of like realize that like you're on two separate sides and they're and they're not able to understand a different point of view. But that sucks. It sucks. And then on the other side, it's like, well, is it worth you sort of just saying, hey, I think that we disagree. Like I honor and respect your choices. I honor and respect that this is the type of life that you want to live. And I'm asking you to honor and respect that like I'm choosing to not have children and I'm choosing to not get married. And as friends, I hope because my decision actually has nothing to do with you and is just about how I want to live my life. I really hope that like you can have it in your heart to to be okay with that and for us to continue on as friends because I, I value our friendship But when you try to impose your ideas of how I should be living my life, it's really upsetting to me. And I and I don't want us to keep doing that dance. Do you think it comes from fear? Because otherwise, what does it have to do with you that you're I mean, either it's like it's it's kind of like, well, my choice is the best choice. And I believe that for everyone, which kind of I think that's a lot of it. Or is it fear of like, we're not going to have, you know, as much in common unless you do what I've done? I can only obviously guess, right? And I and obviously they're coming from a completely different culture than us. And so I mm-hmm. think that those messages are probably still really strong in, in, in that culture that like 
people do get married and have children, maybe a little less than like in liberal Los Angeles. But, you know, I think there might be this fear that like, this is the way people live their lives that are happy. And I'm worried about this person I love not being happy and making the wrong choices. Mm hmm. And so that comes from a place, a misguided place of love of like, let me prevent, let me prevent you from making these mistakes, but they don't have the ability to see, oh, it's actually not a mistake. It's how Mm -hmm. this person wants to live their life and they have the agency to choose how they want to live their life. Yeah. I mean, I'm a queer person, a person who doesn't sort of fit into like, you know, general mainstream society, let's say, although that's up for debate, but Even my therapist had to tell me not to judge a person based on like heterosexist society or like mainstream society. Like there's someone in my life who uh, has never had a relationship, a romantic relationship and like works a job, but doesn't really have motivation or ambition to to have any kind of like upward mobility. Mm -hmm. And I was like spinning my wheels worrying about this person, me. And my therapist had to be like, why do they need that? Like, why do you think they need that? Why is that important? And I was like, well, you need to be in a relationship. And my therapist was like, why? Everybody does? And I was like, well, huh. And then I was like, well, you know, she needs like a a job. And my therapist was like, why? And I even said like, this this is a person who smokes weed a lot. And I was like, well, she can't just smoke weed all day. And my therapist was like, why? (laughs) And I was like, because she has to, oh my God, capitalism. Oh my God, it's capitalism. (laughs) Like, like my therapist was like, what if she likes doing what she's doing and smoking weed all day and being by herself? What if that's what she likes and that's who she is as a person? And I was like, oh my God, this is none of my business. Like my brain (laughs) had like a, you know, like I was like, maybe that person's not broken at all. And they're broken according to what? And like, I think like even the most whatever of us can still have that fear of like this person's suffering and they're not. Well, right. It's it's really hard to be able to say what works for me doesn't work for them. Right. Yeah. And the people that we love, we want them to be happy. And so if we have maybe figured out what makes us happy. We're like, let me share this secret with you. Let me let me fill you in on what works. But they might not work for them. Right. It might not be what they want mm-hmm. as a hard pill to swallow. But I think that that's great advice for how we approach everybody. Obviously, it's different if this person you're talking about came to you every day and was like, I wish I was in a relationship. Right. But like was unable to do what you know, what was able to form a healthy relationship, but that's what they wanted. That's very different than like them just being happy single and you feeling like, no, they would be happier in a relationship. Yeah. And, and everything that they've ever told me has indicated that they don't want to compromise. They don't like monogamy. They don't care for other people. Like, why would I feel like you should date someone (laughs) if they don't want to? And, and that's the thing. You have to just like let go of it. I mean, even uh, it's internalized sexism in some ways, like, you know, this idea of what women should be like and what women should want. Like I'm queer. I'm not married. I'm 33, you know, whatever, all this stuff. And like, I even recently was like, well, I said something offhand, like my parents probably think that all all their kids are failures because none of us have children. Then I was like, why did I think that? Like, I genuinely had that thought and had to be like, what? And I think like you have to go in to yourself and and it's uncomfortable to examine like the things that so casually are in every movie, every TV, you know what I mean? Like to be like every family around you to be like, oh, you getting married so your parents can feel like they made you into a normal person is like not, you know what I mean? Like, or viewing other people that way is like not accurate. And I know that from living my life, but I don't know it from my brain to my mouth, you know? Yeah. I mean, we are, we are very susceptible to messages in society and there is a lot to unpack. And so it's like, it's this double-edged sort of like we have to unpack it, but we also shouldn't be so harsh on ourselves on the fact that we have them in the first place because it makes sense mm-hmm. that we have them. It's then just doing that little bit of extra work to be like, to re-examine, to ask ourselves, mm-hmm. why do I think that way? Is that an accurate way for me to think? Is that serving me? Is that serving the people around me? And taking it back to the listener, like I don't know if her friends are in a place where they want to, where they even want to unpack anything, you know? She should and ask them. I think she should present that to them. I mean, it's hard, right? And because when you start to unpack that, then this this clear 
view Mm -hmm. that you've had forever starts to crumble a little bit. And that can be really scary for people because then it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, I had options. I I didn't have to follow this path. And that can be really scary. And so, you know, I think it's kind of getting a sense of these friends' willingness to do a little digging around and and they might be willing and they might not. And and they might not be willing today. They might be willing in six months. I think it's going to, you know, like we say a lot of times, it probably won't just be one conversation. But I do think that it is worth telling them that this is, if they aren't going to see your side, then this is something that you don't want them to keep badgering you about. That like, they need to appreciate that you are making the right decisions for you and that when they are imposing their views on you, it's it's hurtful and it's not healthy for the friendship. Yeah, and they shouldn't want, you to be upset after leaving hanging out with them. (laughs) That's just bare minimum. I get that this comes from a good place, but it is Mm -hmm. not actually helpful to me. (laughs) Yes. And I think if you can't control them, you can control yourself and you can say, you know what? I let it roll off my back. Or that you don't, you set up a boundary that this isn't a topic you want to talk about with them if they're Mm -hmm. not able to kind of get what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Also, I love the social justice work your therapist is doing incredible stuff. (laughs) My th- <laughs> that my therapist was like, at, my therapist is, a, I've said this before, a butch woman who yells at me a lot. <laughs> and, you know, like I, oh my God, this is a, a, ta- a little bit of a tangent, but I said something about that because of my gender stuff, I'm worried about looking like an old woman. And she was like, well, you should unpack the misogyny of that statement. And I was like, <gasps> I love her. <laughs> She was like, you can feel worried about looking like a woman, but you should unpack the part about old. And I was like, ma'am, this is a Wendy's. No, it's a therapist's office. And that's exactly where you should have those discussions. Anyway, (laughs) if you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Jamie Loftus. So stay tuned. Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Jamie Loftus, who is a comedian, Emmy-nominated TV writer and podcaster in Los Angeles, who has made amazing podcasts like My Year in Mensa, Lolita Podcast, Bechtelcast, Actcast. Just if you like podcasts, you like Jamie. Welcome to the show. Hey, what's up? Thank you so much for being here. We were talking about how we have to narrow down your expertise. Um, and so we wanted to talk to you about your Lolita podcast and your experience breaking down the book and films Lolita. The scariest one. This is my scariest area <laughs> of expertise. <laughs> yeah. So what made you decide to do a deep dive into all things Lolita? It was something that I had wanted to do for a really long time, but just never saw myself having kind of the time or space to get done. But then, you know, we were locked inside for a year and I was like, well, I guess now is the time to tackle the most depressing thing that I've ever wanted to know a lot about. Because I was really like, I was really fixated on, I told people when I was very young, like Dolores age, that this was my favorite book and I totally understood it. And it was recommended to me in like Nickelodeon magazine by my favorite children's author. And I read it and I fully, I mean, didn't get it. Like I didn't understand, (laughs) but I knew that it was positioned to me as a love story. And I wasn't a sophisticated enough reader as a 12-year-old to read between what as an adult feels very obvious to me is not a love story. And I don't know. And and it just seems like one of those things that everyone has a really strong opinion about, but no one has really thought about in a thorough way. So it was something that I was willing to at least attempt. So that's why I did the show. So at the time, like what made you think it was a love story? Like how is it positioned if you read it as like a young person? Well, I think uh, what it was had very little to do with the book itself because I just know for if I remember reading it and thinking like, I don't really get this. This is like pretty over my head, just like writing wise style. It's like Mm -hmm. Nabokov. It's not really written for middle schoolers. But what convinced me effectively that it was a love story was 
everything else I knew about it, which was the way that the cover art looked and the pull quotes on the back of the book that tells you this is the greatest love story ever told. And then I said, okay, I don't quite understand the book. So I'm going to watch the movie that's streaming for free on YouTube, the Adrian Line version from 1997 with Jeremy Irons. And that movie fully believes that this is a tortured love story between an adult and a minor. And I didn't understand the book. And so I sort of assumed that all of the media and talk surrounding the book would tell me what it was about. And I think that this is like a really unique case of that very much not being the case at all. Yeah, something I talk about a lot is the difference between the writer's point of view and a character's point of view Mm -hmm. and how like... What matters is like the writer's point of view. You can have these flawed characters. You can have them do problematic things. But what needs to be clear is what the writer is saying about those things. Mm -hmm. And so where do you think that disconnect happened with what the author's intention with Lolita was and then how society took it? I mean, it's a gigantic swing to take in fiction to even attempt talking about CSA so in that way, I mean, I, I feel like if you're an author that wants to take that on, you just have to be ready for people to have a very, very strong reaction to it. Because of course they're going to, it's one of the most horrible things that exists in humanity. So I think that it, it was to some extent a natural human reaction to someone attempting to address that in fiction. And I also, I think it also is kind of telling of the time that it was coming out in because it came out in the 50s during the McCarthy era. And so it was a huge time for whatever, you know, just I think part of the reason that he did it was in sort of to fly in the face of how you couldn't really make attempts like this unless you were a huge author like Nabokov was. He originally tried to not publish the book under his own name. He was afraid that he would be put in jail for it. He was, you know, his good friend had been taken to court for years over trying to write a story that I think addressed the like incest taboo. I mean, there's so much of it. And then I also think that it's on the subsequent kind of adaptations because Reading the book and then also just having some knowledge of who Nabokov was, who could be a a total asshole, but was not an abuser of women or children. And kind of having that context, I put a lot of the focus on how it was adapted and how, I don't know, just like the media's instinct to be like, okay, this is a horrific story about something horrific, but people are really responding to it. How do we sanitize this and monetize it? And the way that they decided to do that was by making the relationship okay. And that instinct to me is so just awful and dark and like telling of where media was at then. And then also where it was at very, very recently, because I would argue that, you know, the the adaptation that was made in the late 90s was by far the worst and most, you know, exploitative one. Yeah, I mean, he's an incredible writer, but I wonder how many people know the bare bones of the story without having read the book. Did you encounter a lot of people or like a lot of the situation where people didn't realize that the book is written to be like, this is a bad guy? Like, is there a disconnect between people who have read the book and people who just generally know the story? Yes. I don't want to like sound like, I don't know. Like a book reader? (laughs) Well, it's just also like, I totally understand why people refuse to engage with the book based on the premise. Like it is not everyone is going to want to read this book based if, if you know remotely what it's about. And that is like completely valid. I never want to be like, you have to read this book because it's extremely triggering and upsetting and not everyone's going to want to read the book. And that's fine. But I did think it was interesting. I encountered like a lot of people that seemed to be reacting more to the subject matter than the book or the story itself. And so they were reacting to the media that surrounded the book, assumed that the book was saying the same thing, when in reality, my opinion is that's not the case for Lolita the book versus Lolita the cultural entity. I've never read the book and only through like listening to your podcast that I realized that there was that kind of prologue to it, which sort of like sets it up. Can you talk a little bit about what the prologue is? Yeah. So the book is framed at the very beginning, telling you 
basically that the story you're about to read is written by like the scum of the earth. You know, you're reading a book by someone who has repeatedly committed CSA crimes and murder. The framing narrative that is like weirdly kind of funny. There's always, there's like moments in this book that are funny and you're like, how is this possible? But they also tell you like, okay, this is a first person account of someone who is trying to prevent himself from, you know, spending the rest of his life in jail for these things that it is proven that he did. And it's almost like it sets you up in a way that it's like, you can argue, why would you write this? I mean, that question is totally valid, but in the framework, you are told like this is someone trying to get away with murder and and CSA and you as a reader, are you going to let him in your mind? And I think that that is like a lot of what is so difficult and challenging about the book for me is is like it feels like the book of is trying to make a character who is so manipulative that they're trying to convince you to, you know, empathize with him for the entire book and making all of these excuses and all of these kind of qualifications and, and demonizing this child. Yeah, it's it's almost like just a thought experiment of like, can you let this manipulative, deeply evil person get away with this in your mind? And that seems to me more what the book is about. And they kind of tell you that. I don't know. It's 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 very tricky. He's delusional. I mean, Humbert's delusional. And the thing that that blows my mind about the jump to film is that then these films take him at his word. She's portrayed yes. as coming on to him. She's portrayed as like very sexually aware. But he's delusional. He's making it up. Like he's inventing it in his mind to avoid being accountable. It's like he's at very least delusional. But also I'm like, he's just lying, you know, like, yeah. He's lying because he needs you to believe that this child deserved what happened to her in order to get out of the accountability that people are trying to hold him to. And men, I think men were like, yeah, this is right. <laughs> right, 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 right. Like it's, yeah, the the initial reaction was so telling in that, I mean, the, the, there were a lot of male critics that were, you know, horrified by it. There were other male critics who were like, yeah, cut him a break. And it's like, uh, no, that's actually not what the book is about. <laughs> Preteens are coming on to me all the time. Like it created this false character of like the sexy preteen. I mean, it it's so insidious in the way that, yeah, that the Humbert Humbert character does it where he needs you to believe that she was a deeply manipulative person who was out to get him a man in his 40s who killed her mother and abducted her. Like, it's just, and it's written in such a way that it's like, you constantly have to be taking a step back to be like, now hold on. The fact that this property has only been, with the very recent exceptions, adapted in big ways by men who very much take Humbert at his word. And that's really the only way it's ever been taken. You don't see, I mean, really in any big adaptation, there's no question the the framework never appears in any of the adaptations, which I think is really, really telling. So you're never told the reason he is presenting the information the way that he is. And he's presented as this kind of tragic romantic hero and they're as these star-crossed lovers when the story rolls out exactly the same way. But when you're completely buying into a criminal narrative, it's really, really dark and frustrating. And I still get mad about it because it like deeply affected me as a kid. Because when I was watching the movie, when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, I didn't know any better. I was just like, yeah, I guess that they're star-crossed lovers. And I guess this is like a cool and normal thing that happens. And wouldn't it be cool to be thought of in this way? Even though she dies at the end, like this whole ordeal kills her. It's just, yeah, uh, I've, I'm always mad at the the advertisers and the directors that have just negligently adapted the story. Like, just don't. How has the, the iconography and stuff affected uh, young women? I was thinking about it and I also loved the book. And then when I was like 21 or something, I posted something on Facebook. I, w- I went back and, and looked and it's me. This is embarrassing, but here it is. I'm wearing knee socks and it's me from the waist down at a coffee shop and on the table is Lolita. 
And it was completely <laughs> intentional. Incredible. Though. I dated men in their 30s. Like, what the fuck? I feel like it's affected young girls differently in different eras, depending on like what was the most popular Lolita adaptation at the time. For our era, for sure. I mean, like the Adrian line. And then also just generally Lolita, who's not even a person. The character's name is Dolores. Lolita is a construction of this abusive, evil protagonist mind, not even a person that exists, but that's the person who is famous. And it's this sexy baby doll underage girl. And the aesthetic quality that goes with that is like, that's what is associated. I think like that's the mental image that comes to people's mind when they think Lolita is the aesthetic of, I feel like it's often like an adult trying to look like a young girl in a very seductive way. It's just sexy baby stuff. Like it's just, and it's so far removed from what the intent of the story was about. It blows my mind. And it's also, I think it is very consistent with how <laughs> pop culture kind of takes those things. And and then more recently, I was looking at like, there was heavy, heavy, heavy Lolita Tumblr uh, and online teen communities that I, I did an episode on. And that was really interesting because there is definitely a shifting understanding of what this story is in a way that I find pretty encouraging. And like the last thing I wanted to do with this show was like demonize teen girls for being given bad info. But they're figuring it out on their own anyways, where there is still an internet culture surrounding it that likes the aesthetics of the Lolita story, which I still think is uh, worthy of discussion. But there also are these constant disclaimers on these posts saying like, I understand what this story is about, like blah, 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 like, you know, just having a critical understanding and they've all read the book and they all discuss the book in a way that I found encouraging. And they're just, I don't know, they're certainly thinking about it on a deeper, more nuanced level than I was when I was a teenager. And I found that encouraging. I was just like, oh, right. Like Gen Z is objectively just like has more synapses firing than I did. <laughs> Maybe a bit more critical thinking able yeah. to like. Grew up encouraged to do it a little more. Yeah. Not that many people might realize that it was based on a real case, right? But yeah, there's a there's a few cases that it seems like Nabokov was pulling from. There was a great book that came out called The Real Lolita that, yeah, there there's, uh, I think there's two cases that Nabokov references explicitly in the book as kind of the blueprint for what Humbert Humbert does to Dolores Hayes. The Real Lolita is written by Sarah Weinman. It's it's a really, really tragic and, and good account of, yeah, a real kidnapping of a girl named Sally Horner by a man in his 40s who similarly just continued to get away with abducting a teenage girl by gaslighting her and by relying on the fact that law enforcement wasn't going to question a white guy saying, this is my daughter. And that continued for for years. And unfortunately, in different circumstances than Dolores, but Sally Horner, who is a very real person, also died very, very young uh, in, in, in an unrelated accident. But just the extreme abuse that this very real girl and then this like famous fictional heroine experienced both just absolutely destroyed their lives. It's just, yeah, bad. And I'm, I'm very happy that um, Sarah wrote that book and, and drew attention to just how how real of an issue it was. And and I think that it kind of lends a little more credibility to Lolita as well, because to me, learning about the Sally Horner case was like, well, this was something that needed to be discussed in a pretty urgent way in this, um, you know, in the 40s and 50s in the U.S. And the fact that no one received the message and the takeaway was like, this is actually really great is so bleak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where did the heart-shaped glasses come from? That is all Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick was the first guy to, um, I'm famously calling Stanley Kubrick a guy, just some guy. <laughs> but he did the first major adaptation of the of the book in 62 at a time where like you really couldn't 
adapt the story in any meaningful way. So the movie like isn't good, but it also feels so disconnected from the book because of the whatever restrictions at the time. That was just something they did for the poster that has nothing to do with the book. Those glasses don't appear in the book. Nothing to do with the source material. It's just hot baby marketing. And that's like the most popular image is something that has nothing to do with anything. Right. Do you feel like as a society, we are finally starting to understand that that teenage girls are not adults and that they cannot consent to relationships with adults? Or do you think we still have a a long way to come on that? I still think we have a long way to come on that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think teenage girls have a better understanding of that just based on working on this show. I don't think that adult men have a better understanding of that. But I do think that Mm -hmm. in general, just based on what I've seen observing these like Lolita fan communities, that teenage girls certainly seem to have a, a, a better grip on that than I did when I was their age. And I think that that is really positive. And then, you know, adult men are kind of unyielding and being the worst. So I don't think that they've made much progress, maybe. It's hard because I think like I'm going back to like myself as a teen. And I think it's like this idea of like, well, I'm going to be sexualized by these older men anyway. So I'm empowering my I'm choosing it I'm taking it like yeah that was kind of the weird mindset of like I'm trying to unpack like why it was appealing to me in any sort of way that seems to be a lot of it though like and that's something that does come up in the book in the Dolores character except that the protagonist is punishing her for it it's like she's a young girl that is experiencing a sort of power that she's never had before. And that's something that is like so real to being any teenager is like learning that about yourself and kind of processing that feeling for the first time. And it's on the adults in the room to not do something. Right. Yeah. I I think that what you're describing, Gabby, that sounds like so, so much of like what the teen communities are still like surrounding this book Mm -hmm. is like seeing that and what I what I like about these groups is that they hyper fo- focus on Dolores and they very deliberately separate the Lolita from the Dolores and they focus on like what does Dolores do? How does she get herself out of situations? How does she respond in moments of distress and stuff like that? And they, you know, to an extent seem to like admire, yeah, her ability to recognize the power that she is holding over someone else for the first time and how she in a circumstance she should never, ever, 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 ever be put in, how she is processing it. It makes sense to me that is an appealing. And I feel like there's other teen characters that are kind of coming into their power in a less deeply traumatic way that is also kind of um, something that like, you know, teens, of course, are going to like respond to and want to engage with. There are still modern versions of it. Like I think people had mixed feelings about Call Me By Your Name for the Elio character being 17 or yeah. Riverdale having the teacher fucking the kid, although these are these are different genders. But like, I feel like there's a maybe a, a backlash of like the teacher-student storyline or the sort of like people were engaging with the Elio and, uh, and Oliver storyline critically. I don't know, but I, I still see it. I mean, what are the modern versions? You know what I mean? That, that you came across. I didn't get too into the modern versions. I kind of just stuck to Lolita specifically, but one that came up a lot that I, it was the entirety of Pretty Little Liars. Right. Would be brought to me pretty frequently because I was watching that show as it came out, like in high school, I think into college and oh, like they reference Lolita explicitly explicitly, repeatedly in that show as like a hee-hee-ha-ha, which is how that book is very often referenced in the frame of a predatory relationship to legitimize it. And like, I guess more niche versions of this story, but there are two novels that I read that are directly kind of engaging with Lolita. And one is called My Dark Vanessa, which uh, features a teacher character using Lolita as like the book Lolita as a grooming tool to legitimize like, well, it's okay that I am doing what I am doing because look, this is the blueprint. And doing 
kind of what I fell for as a kid and not using the text as much as using the reputation around the text to legitimize his own, you know, despicable actions. So I really enjoyed that book. It's by Kate Elizabeth Russell. And then there's another book by Alyssa Nutting that tries to swap the gender dynamics of the story. And I think like very much reinforces how there is no dynamic with this power dynamic that is going to be okay and and sort of directly engaging with the how different a Lolita style story is reversed when the genders are flipped. And I had conversations with like men who as teenagers, if they were approached by an older woman, were made to feel like they were emasculating or like they were they were not doing the right thing if they rejected an older woman as a minor and and how that dynamic kind of works. And um, she wrote a real, like a brutal but good book called Tampa about kind of exploring that. And so I don't know. I mean, like I spent six months or eight months, I think, working on that show. And then I just I try not to think about it as much now because it was so emotionally <laughs> taxing. But there is a lot. I mean, there's a lot of modern work that is like still directly engaging with Lolita. And I think in a different way than used to be, which is kind of cool. Yeah, My Dark Vanessa was a really interesting book because it was sort of this journey of this woman realizing that she had been abused, right? Is that sort of how you Yeah. And I think that that was like a really interesting thing where she kind of bought into this thing of like, no, we're in this love story only to realize, oh my God, no, I was a child. And so I feel like that use of the Lolita in that book was actually really powerful and smart because it showed how how people manipulate this story to make to convince people that what's happening is okay, like fully not understanding what the intention of the actual book was. Right. And like how deep into your adult life that thought can remain kind of pervasive and sticky. And yeah, I mean, that book fucked me up. Really liked it. (laughs) (laughs) It was really good. (laughs) Speaking to that and to Allison's earlier point about um, the author versus the character, did Nabokov ever uh, regret writing it or express any sort of like, I have given people a tool I have messed up. No, uh, that wasn't really something he would say. Uh, he's He was a uh, no regrets kind of guy. <laughs> I do think it was interesting watching his, he and also his wife Vera's changing reaction to it over the years because from their perspective, like Lolita was so huge for Nabokov. It was supposed to destroy his career and then it ended up making him financially viable for the rest of his life. He was able to retire from teaching. He was able to kind of like get this creative blank check for the remainder of his life. So at the beginning when the book first came out and he was afraid he was going to go to jail for it, I thought it was interesting to watch him be really, I mean, speak to what the book is about and be like, look, this is not an endorsement of CSA. And he never said this publicly, but in his biography, he was a survivor of CSA himself and not a perpetrator of it by any account or accusation at any time. And so I think he was like, can you just like read the fucking book, please? And there's letters from his um, wife, Vera, who is so fascinating to me, but she also said a lot to that extent of like she, I wish I had the quote in front of me, but just a very, very specific, the year after the book came out, like it is so incredible to be that everyone is reading this book and no one recognizes who the central character is and like how tragic and unfair what is happening to her is. And that is what the book is about, is this great injustice that's been done to this child and how many systems had to fail in order for this to happen. So they very much knew what the book was about. But then as time went on, and I think it became clear to them that people were not going to receive that message in that era, they kind of stopped talking about it. And they kind of stopped engaging with Lolita at all. And they, they, they're they like, well, we sold the movie rights, so now it's in their hands. And I, it's interesting because it's, I, I understand that impulse because to an extent, like constantly explaining that it's a full-time job and it's very draining. And it's like, I don't know. Yeah. He unleashed something very fucked up into the world. And I think, you know, it's like almost impossible to kind of keep up with. Or to put the, put it back in the bottle. Yeah. 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 
So before we move on to the to the game show, what do you think is is a <laughs> it's such a tough topic, but like what do you think that this says about how we engage with art? Do we need to be more critical about what what the creator's intention is instead of what maybe society is telling us the intention was? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a good place to start. I didn't really have any expectation of how I was going to feel about the source material going into the show versus leaving. I kind of thought that I would think worse of it, but I mainly felt worse about media more so than the book itself. Mm. And I think that that is like an interesting and very complicated discussion of like, once you release a piece of art into the world, how much responsibility do you have for how the world receives it? And at what point, you know, does an artist's responsibility, like at what point is it truly just out of your hands, regardless of what your intention was? And that's something that I still think a lot about. I mean, I don't really have that answer, but I do think this is a really a kind of extreme example of when you attempt to have a discussion about something that is very, very difficult that not many people are going to try to have a discussion about. And also just knowing that Nabokov, it was something that meant something personally to him and his own personal experience. And to see it be twisted and sexualized and permitted in all the ways you would kind of expect a big media machine to do that in. So it's just like, I think one of the bleaker examples of that happening it sucks. But then it's also fun to to watch, you know, on the other end, people kind of recognize that over time. And I, I was like very touched and happy that people were like willing to give this podcast a shot and willing to talk to me about it and willing to like just take another look at it. So that that feels nice. Ultimately, it was really hard and I was so sad for, for so long. <laughs> you thought during a pandemic, too much <laughs> happiness. Too much happiness. Need to do some more sad. Let me think of the worst thing I can think of and just keep yeah. doing that. But yeah, no, it was, it was, everyone was so kind. And I think that it's still worth engaging with and thinking about. Would you like to have some, some fun now? Yeah. Okay. Well, then we're going to play hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions that you might have. And then I just get to decide who wins. Ooh, okay. Love this. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. So our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Ooh. Your partner of 10 years is an undercover FBI officer. During an operation, they have to get close to a beautiful yet dangerous woman. They end up sleeping with the beautiful yet dangerous woman to earn her trust and get the information they need. This is explicitly against FBI policy. <laughs> Would you stay with this cheater who is now getting disciplinary action taken against them? What was the information? Where a bomb was. Oh, yeah, I'd stay. I would stay. <laughs> well, here's the thing. There's a lot of steps here. Because if you're an FBI agent, you're a cop. So I'm not going to be with you to begin right. with. But also, I in my head, that's part of the job. Okay, I, James Bond has warped me because I thought that's part <laughs> of it. I didn't no. realize that that was like something you get in trouble for. No, you're not supposed to sleep with the informants. But how do you gain their trust then? How do you <laughs> infiltrate? That doesn't make any sense to me. I'm out. I also, yeah, FBI are the police. So... That's already like a barrier to entry a relationship. Do I really love this person or could I, am I sort of like, I would be fine. No, you really love them. I really love my FBI partner so much. Yeah. They saved New York City from a bomb. I'm still hung up. So <laughs> if know. I was going to do a crime, then I would fuck every person in the crime ring to make sure nobody's a cop. That's just good sense. What? Because if the cop isn't allowed to sleep with me, that's how you find who the cop is. I also oh. wouldn't have sex with someone and then immediately tell them where I put a bomb. But that's on her, I guess. <laughs> she is a, a dangerous woman. She, li she lives on the edge. Okay, well, <laughs> I, I take issue with the cop angle, but I think that <sighs> save New York City, I think I would stay. And the good news is, is they're going to get kicked out of the FBI. So now your partner's not even a cop anymore. Now we're going to start a little plant store together. Yes, exactly. Oh. 
okay, I'm staying. I'm staying. They're leaving the police and they saved New York City. Win-win. And the plant store is really surveillance equipment put inside plants. (laughs) Why? People people will love that. Oh, my God. Like a nanny cam. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, our next game. Is this a date? You go see a live sketch show by yourself. You sit next to someone who is also by themselves. The show is hilarious. And every time there is a funny joke, you and the stranger next to you make intense eye contact and laugh and laugh together. It is incredibly intimate. Is this a date? Wait, I've gone to a sketch comedy show by myself? Yeah, because you're friends with people in the show. Oh, did that to Jamie's show. Okay, I was about to be like, why did I do that? But I've done that myself, so I take it back. (laughs) I've also done that, but I've never had a connection. I feel like I try to make myself invisible when I go places alone. I don't think it's a date. But we don't talk. We just laugh together. But like so intense and just like deeply into each other's eyes. You look at each... Oh, you're like looking at each other. Yeah, you turn and look at each other and go... (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) With intense eye contact. Do you touch at all? At one point, you sort of like pat their leg like, that's so fun. (gasps) That's exciting. Okay, now it's a date. (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. It's a date. Because because (laughs) sharing a sense of humor is really important. And once you break the touch barrier, it's a flirt. Ooh. So I feel like the touch barrier tells you at least like they're available. You would hope. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Okay, if the touch barrier is broken, it's a date. If not, it's a weird friendship. (laughs) Well, it turns out that's exactly where you met your FBI partner. They also love live comedy. (laughs) Was he undercover? (laughs) No, he just loves live comedy. Loves it. That's how he unwinds at the end of the the (laughs) long day. (laughs) He's like, I did have to shoot a bunch of people, but I love to laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, our final game. Are you a terrible parent? While on a walk with your child. Sorry, this one is so funny to me. (laughs) You're making yourself laugh. You wrote it. It's so terrible. You wrote it. (laughs) I'm bored. Okay, it's really bad. Okay. I'm crying a little. Okay. While on a walk with your child, 10, you discover a dead body. (laughs) Your child starts to freak out. So to prevent them from being scarred for life, you start to laugh and act like it is an elaborate prank and the body isn't real. (laughs) You even go so far as to touch the body and announce, yep, it's plastic. This calms your child down and you finish your walk, but you do become a suspect in the investigation (laughs) before ultimately being cleared. Are you a terrible parent? Oh my god. No, no, you're not. You're just your your priorities are just all wrong. They're all that's I think you're a really good parent if you're like so worried about your kid's state of I mean, to be fair, there's no way that would work and it would ultimately psychologically damage them down the line. But in the moment, I think that you're doing your best. You shouldn't have touched it though. That's the touch barrier issue. I want to quit this show. Why, Gabby? Because I can't. It's like I was just when it got to the part about touching the body and saying, yep, it's plastic. I've had enough. I I loved that part. (laughs) Okay. Well, does the kid believe me? Yeah. I'm a good parent then. You're good. All right. Is your kid very aware that you're then a suspect? You keep it from them. You're able to keep that from them. I don't get charged or anything. No, but you do spend 10 hours in intense police questioning. <laughs> you like really shouldn't have touched it is the thing. Like, <laughs> I think about that all the time in TV shows. Like stop touching things while doing crimes. Yeah. Yeah. Except mine's my OCD being like that floor is dirty. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is like you're leaving evidence. <laughs> I'm sort of every time I see a TV corpse, I'm like, I want to talk to them. I want to know what their day was like. Right. Yeah. What a dream. So the takeaway was excellent parent. Right. Good parent. (laughs) Good, good parent. Great hypothetical. Excellent parent. 
<laughs> oh my god jamie thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me this really um this really was the serotonin i needed <laughs> where can people follow you and, and listen to all of your wonderful podcasts you can follow me on uh twitter and instagram usual places i'm on Twitter at Jamie Loftus Help, Instagram, Jamie Christ Superstar. And yeah, listen to my shows. You can listen to Lolita podcast or if you want to be in a good mood, there's shows for that as well. Uh, I just did a podcast about the Kathy comics that is less upsetting. So you can listen to that. That's called ActCast. Amazing. Woo! Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. I love you guys. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about prevention. between us it's time for topics x x x x x x x x baby baby wow that was kind of that rang that rang out thank you so much <laughs> you meant that in a nice way right i don't know what that term means. yeah 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 it was kind of i mean i i it was like those like sound bowls mm. you know what i mean it was like that very soothing very soothing yeah. <laughs> So I kind of wanted to talk about prevention as a treatment and why I think we need to have a more of a prevention mindset. No. Because I feel, okay. <laughs> Tune in next week. We'll be talking all about. <laughs> no, I hear you. Tell me. I think a lot of times we wait until there's a problem to address things. And mm -hmm. I'm obviously coming at it from like a mental health point of view where I feel like a lot of times people don't realize that they need to develop coping skills or something until something bad is happening or they don't feel like they need to go to couples therapy until mm. the relationship is in a bad place. And so it just sort of me thinking about it. And I just feel like it applies to so many different things, you know, like even gun violence, <laughs> like yeah. the, the, preven yeah. the prevention of like not letting people have guns so that we don't then have shootings like. Yeah. And mental health stuff. I thought truly you said guns and I thought you were going to say like getting a dermatologist checkup. So I was not prepared for you to say guns. <laughs> like I fully thought you were going to be like getting a mammogram. Like I was very thrown off just now. But even like how we deal with the pandemic, like, you know, yeah. that we just like we let it get so bad before doing anything whereas mm -hmm. like what would have happened if like in early march we did a full shutdown before things mm -hmm. even got bad or we didn't um cut the cdc in half <laughs> before a pandemic was exactly a thing. and that I, we had put more time into like expecting this to happen and how do we prevent it from happening you know what's a great example of this is climate change mm -hmm. and it was interesting uh with the um cop26 conference the climate change conference where uh greta thunberg walked out because she was like this is greenwashing which is basically like talking about recycling or all the you know individualistic things people can do without realizing that like the top seven companies are the ones that contribute the most. And if they just stopped doing that, we would slow climate change immensely. And so asking people to, you know, turn their uh, ACs off is not relevant when these companies are dumping oil and using a bunch of gases that are destroying the environment. So I really uh, admired Greta doing that. And I think like that is a big example of prevention where people are just like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's sad because we, you know, I recycle. I still like, I'm like, okay, we gotta, you know, do our part. But like, it feels like spinning my wheels a little bit because it, it really depends on like big prevention, like gun violence, like you said. Yeah. And going back to the mental health of it all, so much stuff is like, okay, childhood traumas really mess people up. Things that happen in childhood really mess people up. But then why aren't we getting mental health services to children from the beginning? <laughs> like, why aren't we? Because like, they want it. Because it's fucking Darwinism. They want those people to be weaker. They don't like this is why there's no financial literacy in schools to plug bad with money. My other podcast This is why there's no financial literacy, because they're like, oh, we don't actually want these poor people to rise above their station. That would be really inconvenient for us. So, no, or we don't actually want people to not take out student debt because uh, we want people to we want the people that need debt the most in order to achieve mobility, uh, which 
in my research, personal research, is largely black families. Uh, they take out the most debt. Their parents are the most likely to uh, refinance their homes in order to send their children to college. If we didn't punish those people for trying to better themselves, I mean, we would have equality and we can't have that. <laughs> like, it's on purpose. Yeah, I mean, even but even people who maybe don't even have such nefarious intentions, I feel like don't think enough about like, how big an impact giving services to kids is, you know, from the beginning and, and like directly after a traumatic event, having mental health resources on site, having things Mm -hmm. there right away. And, and just like that, we wait until things snowball and snowball. And then it's like, well, I don't know how to fix this. Yeah. hundred percent. That's everything. There's other countries that do it better. Right. So like, if you're listening to this from the Netherlands, (laughs) you're probably like, yeah, that sucks. Like, you know, like there's other countries that handle these things um, much better. So what we're talking about may be a very American problem or at least a North American problem or at least a problem only in specific places. Because I just think there's something very American about you've done this to yourself. And mm-hmm. so I think like the idea that prevention could actually do something, which a lot of us know, but most people at the top tend to have the mindset that they achieved this way because they earned it or they deserved it and they they had some sort of prevention or they had some sort of early intervention where they were able to go to preschool or they were able to you know do these things that allowed them to achieve what they achieved they don't see that as prevention to themselves so they are like well everybody could just do that and that's again capitalism Right. Like how much easier is it to people just to go back to the guns, but like how much easier is it to prevent a shooting by not allowing guns than to prevent a shooting once everybody has a gun? And like even just like putting Mm -hmm. it down to like that simple, like if we start earlier with these problems, you know, if we like make it easier for people to go to doctors regularly, to have checkups regularly, to, you know, like you don't find out you have stage four cancer, you get a mole removed. Right. And so it's just like a a totally different way to like approach mental and physical health that I feel like our system is rigged against us to be able to do. But in terms of like what you can do, like thinking it in a prevention mindset, thinking in like, a okay, I, you know, I'm in a good place right now, but I could still go see my doctor. Maybe that makes sense. Or I, you know, this thing happened. I feel okay, but maybe I should just go see a therapist just to make sure that I'm, I'm handling it. Okay. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. My relationship is new, but I can see that there might be some issues down the road. Why don't we go to couples therapy now instead of three years from now? And because our our government isn't doing that, it, it be, unfortunately becomes like this individual responsibility. But I think it's still worth doing. Mm-hmm. That was well put. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Melissa, do you want to come on in and share your thoughts? I thought this was strictly going to be about like health stuff, but I like that you broaden the scope of it. So great topic. Agree 100%. Not more to say. <laughs> wow. I feel like I just got an A on a paper or something. This is really a thrilling plus, for plus. me. <laughs> we did it. Melissa liked what we said. It's thrilling. Thrilling. <laughs> Good job. Good wow. job. What do you people. rate this episode, Melissa? Lolita always has sickened me to my core (laughs) so you're very smart but the thing is when I first learned about it I didn't understand why people thought I've never read Lolita I'll say that but I knew the story about Mm -hmm. it and I didn't know that the author hated it like it was supposed to not what it turned into and so I never understood why this became such like a big thing that people like praise and it always sickened me. So I'm glad that Jamie's podcast is out there to to share and shine light on that. And I thought this was a great all around episode. So I'm just going to give it two thumbs up. Hey, wow. <laughs> we love that. I will give it 42 out of 38 not married with kids. I love that sitcom. (laughs) I would rate it 13 out of 12. Someone should go back and listen to how many times I've said 13 out of 12. I feel like it's a lot. You have said it a lot. Every time you say it again, I go, oh, she's done it. I don't know why. Anyway, 13 out of 12. I'm obsessed with that. And I don't know why. 13 out of 12, uh, Taylor Swift's. And, And she likes the number 13, right? That's the thing about her. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Very I know facts. <laughs> Melissa, one more thing. One more thing before we go. Melissa, you have a new podcast and I think you should do. promote it here. So let's oh, promote it here you. so that our audience can listen to it. I have a new podcast called But Am I Wrong and co-host it with Megan Rinks. And it is people write in with situations that have gone on in their life and where they're like on the borders, like, I don't know if I did the right thing or not. And then we judge it. We also share <laughs> a story from our lives and also pick a moment from pop culture as well that are current events that we discuss wrong or right in the situation. So it's really fun. I think we're funny. I saw you guys do a TikTok of my favorite, which is Scarlet Envy going, am I the villain? I don't yes. think I'm the am villain. I the drama? Am I the drama? No, <laughs> I don't think I'm the drama, which is my brain all the time. My brain is constantly yes. like, am I the villain? No, I'm not the villain. Am I the drama? Maybe I'm the drama. I am very excited for you to have a podcasting empire bigger than Thank the you. one you already have. Thank you so much. Uh, I think I you already have that. an empire. And it's just yeah. growing and growing. Growing. <laughs> well, thank you to Jamie Loftus for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa DeMonts. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash team or youtube.com slash show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also on Instagram at Allison Raskin, at Emotional Support Lady, at Gabby Road, at BWM Pod, and at She Is Not Melissa. Bye! Bye! Oh, also you should follow patreon.com slash emotional support lady and patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn. Okay, that's real. Bye. Forever. <laughs> Dog. <laughs>